This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hi, Joshua. How are you doing? I am great. Um, <laughs> that's a lie. Nobody's great. There's no such thing as great anymore. That's gone. That is gone. You are uh, living in existential misery like the rest of us. Just admit it. I, I appreciate <laughs> you telling me how I feel. <laughs> I'm a white person. That's my job. I was like, thank you for uh, <laughs> explaining my feelings. Um, I but, mean, uh, is it, it, are we doing great because, um, you know, we don't know any better? Is it because I'm, I'm living in the medicinal bath of uh, streaming everything on the face of the earth? Maybe. I love it. I, I think that's fine. That's acceptable. You know, it's, you, we gotta, we gotta set the bar, you know, at the, at, at the place. <laughs> Yes. I don't know what I'm trying to the place. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Just set, set the bar really low, and then that's great, you know. So, anyways, uh, do you want do you want to introduce our guest today? Our very special guest lecturer. I would love to. Um, our guest lecturer this week is um, a dear friend of mine, and um, again, in, in keeping with kind of this like back to school quote unquote theme. Um, is also, well, I'll let him, I'll let him say what he does. Um, this is my good friend, um, Dr. Connor McLaughlin. Hi, everybody. Hi, Joe. Hi, Josh. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, so Connor, tell the people, um, tell our listener, uh, uh, what is it you do and, um, what is it that you teach? Sure. Uh, so my official job title is teaching professor. Uh, so I'm a faculty member in the Department of Higher Education and Student Affairs at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. And I, so I teach uh, primarily graduate students uh, who are studying to be college and university administrators and uh, also doctoral students who are studying to be a whole host of things, but focusing on higher education administration as a practice and or a research topic. So you're a teacher of teachers. 
Uh, yeah, pretty much. Awesome. And are you, uh, one thing that I've actually been meaning to ask you is that is your, um, on the, on a daily basis, the, you know, the material that you teach, are you teaching mainly like pedagogical strategy or just like higher ed as a concept, as a construct? Um, or yes, uh, yes to both. And uh, yes to both. Uh, so the majority of the people who take my classes are, um, master's level students who are studying to be practitioners. And so, uh, most of the things that I teach need to be sort of need to have co applied components to them. Uh, so I do teach some like theoretical, philosophical, foundational courses about like, you know, what are some of the philosophies that inform the practice of higher education administration? Uh, but pretty much every class session that I offer, uh, everything sort of returns to how do these things inform practice uh, and how do you develop your own personal sense of practice and your own philosophy of practice in order to put all of these concepts into working with students on a day-to-day -day basis. So, uh, I mean, I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy. I tend to be a kind of philosophical person, but uh, I try to remind myself that, you know, for what most of the folks that I'm interacting with in my classes are doing, uh, there needs to be a practical and applied component to it. So I try to also make sure that everything returns to application one way or another. Did I answer your question or did that, I? That actually really did answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that answered my question a lot because I feel I... Uh, I I have always believed this, and I'm sure there's probably some other people who do. But you know, when you um, I went in my undergrad, I went to a large research institu institution, and you know, uh, nine times out of ten, the professors that I did have um, were, you know, either they were primarily researchers. So this was like the one class that they taught that, you know, they were contractually obligated to teach that they basically only lectured in and then, you know, let their TAs do the rest of the, do the rest of the actual um, quote unquote teaching. So I've, I've always felt like at, I've always felt better about um, having instructors specifically at the higher ed level that have like, um, that are about like that practice of teaching that, you know, can do research, do do research, but realize that, you know, they're also there primarily for, you know, the, that enjoy, honestly, that enjoy the pedagogical aspects of it. So that's, yeah. you know, I think that's important. I think that's very important work is that, you know, we always, you have to, who teaches, you know, who watches the watchman, who teaches the teachers. So, yeah, I, uh, Funnily enough, uh, I actually don't have research as like a component of my contract with the university. So I'm, I'm actually not allowed to use my work time to do research. Uh, so I have to focus on teaching, uh, even if I wanted to. And I do research, but I, I do it on my own time and mostly over the summer uh, instead of, you know, having a dedicated day to working on research and publication. So yeah, I, I am contractually obligated to spend 80% of my work time focusing on teaching. And since, uh, because of that, uh, and because of the nature of a lot of the classes that I teach, uh, like uh, most of the course I teach most often is about the history of U.S. higher education. 
and uses learning about the history of U.S. higher education to sort of inform how we got to where we are today and what that means for people who are going to be the next generation of administrators and practitioners. Well, we are putting the school in Fright School today, uh, (laughs) dear listener. Joe, will you say pedagogical strategies five times fast? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's it's one of the words that I That was that wonderful, I though. Like, you said that. I'm like, ooh, look at her. <laughs> she she a pedagogical strategies. Ooh. She went on a date where someone used that word and has been using it ever since. Yeah. Um, did you put on glasses today? Without, I know they don't have the lenses in them, but did you put on your frames? Um, yeah, I, 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 I literally, this is, I, he doesn't listen, so I'll say this, but I literally used to like sort of date someone who, um, is a professor and, um, and. So you were screwing somebody for A's. No, we, I was not, we were not, that's not a thing. It just that sounds that. very nefarious. <laughs> like, I was kind of seeing a professor. Hmm. Well, like, I don't want to, okay, so this is completely off the rails now. Um, my apologies to our guests, but yeah, basically we were, he was talking about his, like, he was on a tenure track. Like, he was on a tenure, a, a tenure track at his institution, and, um, he used the word, like he used that word pedagogical. And it was like the first time that um, I, it was like the first time that someone used it in a, in, in conversation with me. And he used it in a way that there were like perfect, like context clues. I'm like, I know exactly what you mean without having to look it up. And so I've just been like, I've been, I throw that word out there. That's also like these days and Connor will, Connor will definitely appreciate this. Um, but like these days, um, like I, I throw out the words synchronous and asynchronous a lot when it comes to t- when it comes to talking about remote learning. Ah, uh, yes, synchronous. Uh huh. Yes. Is this a, is this a, you know your your synchronous pedagogical model strategy? <laughs> Bright school, the- for instance, is an asynchronous. Uh, yes, endeavor. exactly. <laughs> um. So, well, thank you. And thank you, Connor, again, for, you know, showing up and uh, showing up to talk with us today. Um, And I'm making fun of Joe, not you. (laughs) um, Look, I I think that it is uh, it is very necessary in order to survive working in higher education, especially right now that we need to be able to make fun of ourselves. If if we cannot if we cannot realize the ridiculousness of what it is that we do, even outside of a global pandemic, if we cannot recognize the ridiculousness of what we do, we're missing out on some serious comedy. Yes, oh, <laughs> I want to get you and Professor TJ in the same uh, show and just let you. Know. Uh, that would be that very that would be very funny. I was actually just reminiscing because TJ and I actually know each other, uh, mm-hmm. and we were reminiscing about the time that we met because TJ was on campus for like an interview job talk uh, at the campus where I got my doctorate, oh. and I, and I was the I was on a panel. I was the uh, I was the sole white person on a panel talking about Black Panther and representations of race in comics. 
Wow. And and, uh, and particularly if you know anything about the campus that uh, I got my doctorate from and that TJ works at, it is a very white campus. And so no one showed up. Uh, so it was just all the panelists like sitting around chatting with each other. And then we sort of look over and there's somebody that none of us know uh, standing in the doorway wearing these fantastic glasses with one square frame and one round frame. And we're all just <laughs> Who, who are you? Uh, please come in. And so TJ was like the one audience member of our little chat where it was just four people sitting around talking about how awesome Black Panther was and other representations of race in comics. And that was how I met TJ. That is awesome. That is a great uh, story. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait now to see him because we're going to be doing a, a live show with him. Or actually, by the time this comes out, we will have done the live show. So I am looking forward to, uh, uh, to I am chatting with him about that. <laughs> I, am, I am looking forward to being an audience member for that because uh, you all are doing that as a live show, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So it will be it will be a past event when this uh, when this comes out. So, anyways, we are here today, uh, as always, to discuss horror. The horror, the horror film, and this is kind of exciting because uh, we are we're doing something a little that I can't think that we have ever done, which is to discuss the role of like higher education, the depiction of of schools, of universities within film, particularly horror films. But uh, Connor, we have you here today to kind of talk more, you know, a little broadly about that, uh, which I think is very exciting, and we'll do that when we get into our. Uh, the second half of our conversation with Urban Legend. But uh, first, just real briefly, uh, let's talk about horror um, and your relationship with horror. Uh, are you a fan? Are you a horror fan? Uh, I am. Uh, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot in getting ready to, for this conversation. And I think that my, when I was younger, I was much more of a like avid, constant horror movie watcher. And uh, that isn't to say that I don't really like it anymore. It's just that um, as an adult, my anxiety has gone up. And so I have to sort of meter out my interactions with horror movies, less, <laughs> less my blood pressure go up, which it does. Uh, so yeah, I, I really enjoy horror movies. Uh, I, 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 am, I still get got by jump scares. So, mm-hmm. you know, I still have, I still have that to enjoy. I even, I got, got by some of the jump scares of watching the movie that we watched for, uh, having our conversation today, which is really funny because I've seen this movie a bunch and I would have thought I knew where they all were, but nope, still. And I, it probably doesn't help that I was watching it in a, in a house by myself in the dark, uh, last night. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm a fan. I like horror. Yeah, but I, I get that, though, with the, uh, you know, because I, I remember my mom saying that because my mom was a big fan of horror and, um, as I, you know, maybe I've talked about on this show before. And um, I remember having that conversation with her when I was still, like, in my 20s. And by then she was, uh, you know, around, gosh, got to be almost 40. We're very close in age, so, <laughs> or we're close in age. Um, but she kind of had that same thing where it's like, no, I still enjoy, you know, some of it, but I, I can't, you know, and I always thought, oh, that sounds crazy to me, you know? Like, I think I will always love horror, which is true, but definitely the older I get, the less I want to, there are certain types of horror that I avoid. 
Um, I'm not so much for all the torture porn gore stuff that I was really into, you know, in my 20s. So I get that, how it kind of changes our relationship with it changes. Now it's like I love these five-hour-long, you know, gothic <laughs> art house horror films, you know, that I think when I was younger I probably would have not been so much into. Yeah. Yeah, definitely when I was younger, uh, which feels weird to say, but also, like, is a real thing. I think I, yeah, I was much more interested in, like, the shock and the spectacle of like a gory or sort of like otherwise very upsetting horror movie. Whereas like, I think, I think the last horror movie that's like a a more recent one that I watched that I really, really enjoyed was uh, the witch or the, the, the witch. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, I thought that was really fun because it was still very scary, but it also wasn't, uh, it, it also just, it felt like it was also a period drama and, sort of hit on a lot of things that are generally scary about, you know, I guess I've never been a, I've never been a Puritan uh, or a sort of early, early colonial settler in the United States. But I imagine that still there were some very scary things about living on a farm in the middle of the woods. Oh, absolutely. I love The Witch. I, I think I think it was a beautiful film and mm-hmm. very real, you know, because I mean, I, and I think about that sometimes when I think about like, the way like ultra religious people or ultra conservative people who are very, you know, whose lives are very informed by a religious uh, belief. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be disparaging. I'm just trying to say that like that, that seems like very scary to kind of be in constant fear of like the devil or witches or, you know, what God thinks, you know, that you're always being watched, that every moment of your life is being accounted for. And so I, I, in watching that film, it's like, I saw a lot of echoes even in today's culture, obviously with politics and things being the way they are, everything is so fear-based that I just thought it was such, even though it's set, you know, four or 500 years ago, 400 years, something like that, six in the 1600s, it still felt very relevant to today, you know, and and also, obviously, all the other we we did the witch for one of our episodes, and you know, kind of talked about obviously, you know, the roles of women and how women obtain power and all of that. But beyond that, just like the religiosity, the fear mongering in you know so much religion, you know, as a means of control. I don't know. I think it's very, very, very frightening. I just felt this connection to that film that was kind of beyond you know witches, obviously. So I'm not afraid of witches, <laughs> but I'm afraid of what the very, very powerful that are also very religious uh, do out of fear <laughs> to all <Yeah>. of us. <laughs> Which is yeah, particularly relevant in our current moment. Mm-hmm. So Connor, um, you know, one question that we always ask uh, our uh, our guests is um, why horror. So I'm I'm asking you why uh, why horror? Why horror? Uh, why do you gravitate more to this genre? Why do you? Why is it something that you return to? Uh, hmm, that's a really good question. So uh, if I was to try and describe the the things that I like to people, and this isn't just films, this is you know art or. Uh, music. I, I like things that are, um, I guess the, the, if I was to use sort of as few words as possible, which is a thing I never do, but <laughs> it, I would, I would say I like things that are cute and scary or, you know, like, uh, sort of fun and, uh, disturbing. So I like, I like things that, sort of touch on a number of different sort of experiences or 
they're not senses, but like sensory type of things. So if a thing can make me laugh and make me think and make me feel a little afraid or at least be aware of something that scares me a little bit more, uh, I sort of find that to be a very enjoyable experience, just sort of like how like how a good meal is supposed to hit all of your taste sensors. I think mm. I think a good horror movie can do that because good horror movies or, you know, like uh, like I really I enjoy that some of the Takashi Miike films. Oh uh, I really, yes, <laughs> I really I really liked Audition quite a lot, um, and there are some funny parts of Audition. It's not like uh, I, it's very much a movie that uh, is a very long sort of drawn out piece of suspense, but it still breaks up the suspense with funny things. Mm-hmm. It's a well-made film, I think. I mean, I'm not a absolutely. I'm, I'm not a film critic, but like I enjoyed it, so to me, it's well-made. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think I think horror does a really good job. Like good horror, like any other good kind of movie, uh, does a good job of telling a story and uses a number of elements to sort of bring the viewer along. An experience and you know sort of for the same reason that people like roller coasters i think and i like roller coasters uh and i think of horror as the same way like a you know being scared is okay in a safe environment and sort of getting to exercise some of the things that are scary about riding a roller coaster uh i sort of feel the same way when i ride when i watch a, a fun good horror movie like oh what's coming or oh my goodness like i can feel my adrenaline going up at this time when the characters are feeling this sort of heightened sense of dread, I'm feeling that too. So yeah, so I I enjoy that experience. And I think that, you know, movies that don't have scary things in them sometimes feel like they're missing a piece of it because, you know, there are scary things in real life. And I think uh, having a, a film watching experience that can sort of replicate that can be really enjoyable. So, you know, like I don't necessarily want to actually be chased by someone in a hockey mask or, (laughs) but if I can, but if I can like live that experience a little bit while watching a Friday the 13th movie or a Halloween or something like that, then, you know, I can, I can do that in a much safer environment than what it would actually feel like to be chased by a supernatural person. Right, right. No, I love that. I think you touched on a lot of, you know, the answers that we get from people, you know, that controlling, you know, that controlled environment for anxiety, the experiential, you know, nature of it. Um, I think that's great. Do you remember what the first horror film you ever saw was? Um, It probably was, I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Yeah. Um, I think... I, oh, oh, no, I do remember. It was the first one, the first Nightmare on Elm Street, because uh, my, so I, I'm a child of the 80s. And so like have in very many ways, like the stereotypical sort of like latchkey kid experience mm-hmm. um, because both of my parents worked. And uh, so I, you know, was, would watch a lot of TV and I did, there was a, a sort of neighborhood teenager who babysat for like everybody uh and i remember one time she was watching nightmare on elm street the first one and i remember watching uh the blood come up out of the bed and 
having the experience of being like completely terrified by this because I understood that like this person just got sucked up by the bed and their blood was coming up out of it. And also trying, I think I had to, I must, I was, I was younger than 10. So that might've been like seven or eight, but I remember trying to figure out how they did it in the film at the same, like while being really, really scared of what they were representing. And I think in a lot of ways that probably imprinted on me in a lot of ways. And and then that's another thing that I do find really fun about horror movies is sometimes it's really interesting to try and uh, to try and watch them and figure out what they, what they did or how they went about doing something, which makes it even more fun if I can't figure it out. Like the practical effects and such. Yeah. 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 I uh, like, I love that, you know, I mean, I, kind of had that middle experience where it's like I remember still renting VHS you know movies and you know we were like the same latchkey kids Um, but also getting to grow up in like the era of the DVD with all of like the making of featurettes that they put on everything and so there's been films where it's like I've been grateful for that like uh, particularly Saw 2 with the needle pit because that was one of the most uh, disturbing Mm -hmm. things I'd ever seen in a horror film and it like really literally like invaded my dreams and kind of kept me up because that's just uh, to be thrown into a pit of filthy needles i can't think of a worse experience uh for me well maybe being set on fire but that's not what we're here to talk about Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but watching the like immediately seeing it in the theater and then it like lived with me for months and then when it came out on dvd and they had like a making of the traps of saw 2 you know documentary that it was very helpful to see like the filament wire and you know, how they did that and, you know, to kind of get over it. <laughs> like, okay, now when I watch that scene, it's like, oh, it's just a little, you know, it's like fishing wire. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I wanna, can watch this now. One of my favorite things in the world is to listen to listen to people who really, really know what they're doing talk about really knowing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So when DVD commentary tracks became a thing, I, I've... There, there are some DVDs that I still own that I have memorized the commentary tracks for because I've watched them so many times and listened to the creators, the writers, the directors tell the stories of what they were thinking or how they went about doing something that was like a particularly fun visual effect. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm in that same boat with you. And I, I've absolutely devoured many a, a DVD commentary track and a making of documentary. I love making of documentaries. Yeah, too. totally. Me too. They're so fun. And just, yeah, to get that background, you know, how people, how people do what they do and they love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you, so uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was the first film you remember seeing do you remember what you after that like you know when you heard like this horror movies coming and this you know like what what you sought out after that like you know once you what that you knew was a horror film that you wanted to see uh i'm trying to i'm trying to remember um so uh, it couldn't it couldn't have been scream because there's no way that my parents well that might have actually been why But um, so my parents were very much not into horror movies. Uh, I don't think that they, well, my mom, for one, uh, when she was alive, she just had no interest in it. Um, It was, she wasn't interested in seeing gore. She wasn't interested in being scared. Um, She was just, she wasn't having it. Uh, And my dad, I think, was just sort of of the mind that like, why would you like, 
I think he didn't understand why it would be interesting to people. Like, why would you want to see people being cut up? That's not fun for anybody. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, but that's, that's, that's why I'm interested in it. And he was, he, I just think he didn't get, he just didn't get it. Uh, or it wasn't, it wasn't appealing to him. Um, Connor, sorry, real quick. Just, uh, if you don't mind, how old are you? Uh, I am 36. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're around my age. Okay. So we're around the same age. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. I just, I wanted to contextualize like, you know, your experience, like, you know, in the, anyways, yeah. roughly no the Go ahead. <laughs> so, um, one of the, one of these days, uh, when I, maybe when I have tenure and, um, have an easier time, uh, just researching the things that I want to research and, you know, being able to sort of follow my creative pursuits, differently than when I have to justify why somebody might need to give me tenure. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I have this, I have this thought in my head that the fact that I grew up uh, mostly in New Jersey uh, plays a really big role in uh, a lot of things because in New Jersey, you can't get your driver's license until you're 17 as opposed to 16 okay. in like a lot of other States. And so there was an extra year where a lot of other people growing up were able to go sort of do their own thing that I had to get my parents to drive me places. Yeah. And I have a feeling that that is like a really meaningful piece of my human development because there was a year or an extra year where everybody else who's my age was driving themselves to go sit, go to the movies and sort of doing whatever that I wasn't able to. And so I had to rely on my parents to drive me places. And so if they didn't like what I wanted to go do or what I wanted to go see, you know, they would say like, no, we're not going to take you to do that. And so I, I remember uh, pretty vividly when the first scream came out and it was being marketed as this like self-aware horror movie or a horror movie that was aware that other horror movies existed. Yeah. I remember being super, super captivated by that. And uh, I think in a lot of ways it had to do with being able to realize more about the world that people lived in, uh, which is a thing I've always thought was really fascinating. Like it gave some context that like these people also saw Nightmare on Elm Street and thought it was scary when, uh, when somebody was that, was it Johnny Depp's character who gets eaten by the bed? It was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, they, maybe they got freaked out when Johnny Depp got eaten by the bed when they saw it too. Um, and so I remember being really, really sort of wrapped up in sort of interest and intrigue when Scream came out and they were making a movie that was aware of other movies having existed in that world. That's, that, that's really cool to me. And I'm, I, you know, again, philosophy, undergrad, you know, sort of person who's in my head. I like meta commentary. I think meta commentary is very interesting and very sort of amusing to me. So uh, a movie that was willing to also offer meta commentary on horror movies in the form of a horror movie, like that just, that flips all of my switches and ticks all of my boxes when that's it's awesome. done well, which is, I think, part of why I really liked the screen movies. Uh, at least the first three. I don't think I, I haven't seen the fourth one now that, and I haven't seen the TV show, uh, yeah. but I really enjoyed the first three for their like commentary on trilogies and their awareness of the tropes of horror trilogies and committing to them, but subverting them by commenting on them. Like it's very postmodern. And I think that's very interesting. 
Yeah, no, Scream is fantastic. It's so funny because I had like the opposite. My mother had seen it uh, on a date with a boyfriend, and so she couldn't wait for it to come out uh, for rental, uh, so we could watch it together. <laughs> <laughs> it was like you guys, you kids are gonna love this movie, you know. Anyways, that is awesome. Oh my gosh! So I am very excited to. Um, we're gonna take a real quick break, and we're gonna be back to dive into Urban Legend. Meanwhile, in New Jersey... So, Marissa, what talking points do you want to hit on in this week's episode? Well, Jackie, let's talk about how the film addresses the patriarchy. Ooh, and representation of marginalized people. Ooh, ooh, and even philosophical ramifications of good versus evil and horror. We can point out the triangle boobs, talk about the blood splatter, and, oh, the practical effects. (sighs) Um, and also the male gaze? My gaze at the males... Hi-o! From feminism to fangirling, the Jersey Ghouls cover all the bases of horror from a woman's perspective. New episodes are uploaded every other Sunday. Just search Jersey Ghouls to find us on social media and your favorite podcasting app. All right, welcome back. We are uh, t- uh, focusing today's episode on 1998's Urban Legend, one of those, um, uh, what do you want to call it, like... Um, Shoot, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the um slasher? You no, know, it's like you know when somebody's trying to take somebody's spot. Uh anyway, so revenge. Scream Scream, <laughs> you know, dominated and just reset the whole tone of horror films in, in the late nineties. And this is one of the um uh there's a certain turn of phrase I'm looking for, like um I don't know, like where somebody's trying to be a false king or something. Anyways, not the point. Somebody's going to scream it at me. You usurp. Yeah, like trying to oh. usurp the throne of of scream. Exactly. Um, not very, not exactly successful, uh, but a fun horror film. I like to think we've got. Uh, and again, it, it, the reason I say that is because. This is also, it's very self-aware in the same way Scream was, only choosing, you know, the urban legends rather than um, uh, film, you know, horror films to tell its story. Uh, But we've got lots of nice little touches of things. We've got Brad Dourif, who we know is the voice of Chucky. We've got Robert England, famously Freddy Krueger, popping up in it. So there's like some nods and winks to, you know, a larger horror uh, sphere, and then of course we've got Jared Leto, Alicia Witt, Rebecca Gayhart. Oh my gosh, Tara Reid uh, doing not too bad of a job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a great, it's such a great way to describe her. Uh, oh, Danielle Harris, obviously famous from the Halloween movies. So yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's got a cool cast. You know, fun, fun movie. Joe, what did you think? Um, I, you know what I. So this is one of those films. You can disagree. That, I'm not trying to, I, you know. <laughs> this is one of those films that um, we watch. Like I, I went over to Joshua's in the before time uh, and we watched it and we didn't do an episode on it right away, <laughs> which like happens. Like, I don't know, listener, if you knew that, but like I occasionally will just watch things for fun <laughs> And then maybe down the road, we'll do an episode about it if we have, like, an awesome guest who would be perfect to talk about it with, like we have today. So, you know, it was it was cool because I, what I got to do um, is kind of what I got to experience it a little bit from, like, Joshua's perspective of, like, someone who has seen it and then gets to, like, go back and then fast forward through the boring parts and then, you know, go to my favorite parts and all that stuff. So that's what I did, which I thought... <laughs> 
Which, I mean, I was like, just let's, let's get to Loretta Divine. Let's get all the Loretta right. Divine oh, parts. Oh, yes, Loretta <laughs> yes. I didn't even mention her. God, I'm such garbage. <laughs> dang, dang. Um, so all the Loretta Divine parts. Um, but again, like, so the the question, you know, what did I think? I, I, I really like it. I think it's a good slasher. I think it is definitely um, trying to capture that like you know the magic of scream especially for of the time yeah and and there's just so many i mean there's so many films uh, specifically horror films that are like of that late 90s period and um and i feel like urban legend for me at least it kind of falls out of the consciousness like you know it's either scream or i know what you did last summer mm-hmm. um when you start talking about late 90s but for urban legend kind of falls through and I was like, huh, I mean, you know, it is hokey and campy in very specific ways. Um, but what I, one thing that was really surprising to me is that when I was going back and um, when I, I actually rewatched the the full opening credits and I saw that it was, um, I saw that this was written by Silvio Horta, um, who I know because I'm a huge fan of Ugly Betty and Silvio uh, wrote and uh, was like the producer of uh, and developed it into the Ugly Betty series. Um, you know, recently he passed away this uh, this year, um, but I didn't catch that the first time around. And so um, I thought that was really cool. Hmm. Well, um, hey, I mean, and, and, and totally explains all of the like, you know, campy. Um, the campy elements of it as well. Um, and now I'm like thinking back to like episodes of Ugly Betty that like are influenced by horror and so on and so forth. And it's just, it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought it was positioned really nicely. You know, again, it's one of those things that, you know, maybe could have just been, you know, tightened up a bit maybe but i i think for that time period those of us who you know were born in the 80s and kind of grew up in the early 90s with these scary stories to tell in the dark books mm-hmm. um, this was positioned really well for us becoming teenagers and seeing this because we it was so familiar you know with those you know connected like and that's kind of why i still have a soft spot for this movie is watching it it reminds me of those books which always have like you know a big place in my little horror heart you know for uh, giving me that love of being scared um you know so i just think it's you know it's one of those where it's like eh, it's not perfect but it has a lot of like sentimental value (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) so so the reason that we brought connor on today to talk about this movie in particular is talking about the ways that that like education is is uh depicted the way uh schooling you know universities are depicted in film obviously not particularly horror necessarily, but we're kind of applying that uh, here. So I'm curious, Connor, what you thought of Urban Legend, and then we can kind of get into into the conversation about, um, you know, the media and uh, education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I guess to, like, give, give a little bit of context for what got me interested in reaching out to Joe and Joshua was that this past uh, semester uh, – over the course uh, or before and then over the course of the first chunk of, you know, the, the great hunker down of 2020, mm-hmm. uh, I was teaching a course uh, that was colleges and universities in film and fiction. And we read uh, the sort of main guiding text that we read was this book called Representing You, like the letter U. Um, 
uh, written by Pauline Reynolds, who's a faculty member at University of the Redlands in California. And she wrote about the ways that institutions are represented in various fictional media and noted that as the 20th century progressed on into the 21st century, uh, the depictions of college became oft, often became more and more focused on the institution as a scary place or as a place that was a little more dangerous for people. But as I was reading the book, I noticed one of the things that was missing was she doesn't really talk about horror movies at all. And there are lots and lots of horror movies that are set on college campuses. Uh, and much to the displeasure of some of the students in my class, I had to like really, really lobby hard for to get them to agree to watch a horror movie with me because I was like, there are so many horror movies that are based at college campuses and it helps make the point that the author of our central text is making. And uh, also there's lots of other really interesting ways that horror represents pieces of culture and represents uh, the things that people are concerned about and worried about and, like it's a really great way for exercising a lot of the like social social issues that are sort of in the conscious and the subconscious of the society at any given time. And then they get applied to the college campus, which, you know, is often very much a microcosm of the larger world within which the college exists. And so after sort of, I think maybe like browbeating my students into submission, they were like, okay, fine, we'll watch a horror movie. And I was like... <laughs> And then, of course, uh, The Hunker Down happened, and the film that I had chosen was I wanted to use the 2019 remake of Black Christmas, in part because I believe that the original Black Christmas is the first sort of slasher-style movie, because it came out before Halloween. Um, and I really wanted them, I really wanted to watch a more modern movie because we had watched a lot of much older movies about college from like the 70s and the 60s and the 80s. Um, and so I was like, you know, this has a place in film history. It's also a modern movie. So it's going to get a lot more right about what college is like now, whereas films in the <laughs> 70s aren't necessarily going to be having people sending emails or, you know, text messages and stuff like that. And so anyway, so I like browbeat my students into agreeing to watch a horror movie. And then I pre-order the DVD of it to watch it in class, have it shipped to my office and it arrives the day after our university shuts down and goes completely online and nobody's oh. allowed to go to campus. So I had to be like, okay, well, like, thanks for agreeing to watch it. Too bad we can't watch it now. Um, so we're going to watch Community instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, since uh, going back to class would mean, you know, horrors of another level. <laughs> Yeah. Of, of, a, of a different realm. Yeah. I to your point, I, though, uh, Wikipedia, yeah. there's a whole list of horror films set in academic institutions article. I mean, it's like huge, <laughs> huge number of, of horror films. And I know citing Wikipedia uh, to a college <laughs> professor might not be. Uh, uh, but still, it's a big list. Yeah. <laughs> The, the thing that I always say is that Wikipedia is a great place to start your Just research. Start. It's not a good place to end your research. 
And I will completely cop to having used that same page to start to narrow down which horror movies I was going to try and fight to get included on my curriculum. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, there, I mean, there's some great movies on here, you know? So I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, look at that. We got, Joe, we have like a whole season of episodes we could do just on this topic. I can't wait. <laughs> 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 um, uh, to your point, though, there, uh, uh, the other point was uh, there are typically Bay of Blood, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Black Christmas are all kind of given that uh, mm-hmm. birthing the slasher genre. So, yes, you can you can definitely say that that Black Christmas it does predate Halloween for sure, but it came out the same year as uh, Texas. Mm. So, anyways, back to urban legend. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, okay. So I don't know if it's because, um, I don't know if it's because I grew up on Guam, um, which, you know, a listener, listener at home, if you are keeping track, take a shot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if it's because of that, but like, these are not, I am not familiar with any of these urban legends. These are not things that I knew about. Um, that, I mean, maybe Pop Rocks and Coke, but I think I only knew about Pop Rocks and Coke because kids in school who had seen Urban Legend were talking about it, like, at school, you know? So I didn't know that it was, I didn't know that these were things. Um, and, like, for me, like, you know, we have, like, my, my people have, like, actual legends, <laughs> So like actual like you know actual legends of our ancestors and and anything that falls into like the urban legend sphere um, at least culturally is like somehow like a supernatural telling of something like we have like we have a tale about like a white lady and I don't know if this is a lady dressed in white or if it's like a Caucasian woman but like we have like <laughs> there's like a I, I still to this day have no idea it's like but you know we call it like there's this bridge that like is a haunted bridge on Guam and it's the white lady's bridge. And, you know, I don't know if Karen is just really upset <laughs> when people cross her bridge or not, but you know, that's the thing is that like, that to me is like, for me is not necessarily a legend rooted in like, you know, my ancestors. It's more of like, you know, some white lady doesn't want you on her bridge. Um, well, again, but that echoes then across. That echoes into, uh, you know, La Llorona and mm-hmm. the, the, the ghostly hitchhiker. You know, so again, that does, it gets to all of those. So, I mean, I think that's part of a very real um, human experience of, of these types of stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, regardless of what part of the world you're from, everybody has those stories. Everybody has, you know, and so even if not particular, like these are very particular to, you know, that again, like I said, with growing up with scary stories in the dark, and even though mm-hmm. those were collected folklore being retold, um, you know, they're, they are kind of particular, I feel, to like some sort of like American experience to some extent. Uh, but mm-hmm. again, some of these you can find. I don't know if that falls into urban. Well, yeah, I feel like that's still part of urban legend, you know, because it's not, you know, it's like that ghostly figure or, you know, some kind of thing, you know, not, not, we discussed this a little bit with Candyman too. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was going to say like the, like urban legends, yeah, the crocodiles in the sewer and things like yeah. that, you know, that it's like, well, you know, I mean, maybe something happened to somebody somewhere at some time and it just mm-hmm. echoes through and gets passed on. And, you know, a lot of these, go back centuries, you know, and just still get told, you know, this yeah. is all modern on all like modern folklore. And 
Um, yeah, but even so, it's still yeah. like, oh, the the hook killer. Like, you know, when I was growing mm-hmm. up, oh, that happened to somebody in the 50s, you know? And then before that, it happened to somebody, you know? So it's like it kind of it echoes back and back. It was also like a way for me to, like, you know, learning about, like, European folklore tales because we did you know i had a teacher who did read us uh, scary stories to tell in the dark and learning about like how all of this came from like either a european tradition or an american tradition it made me feel really good living on an island where not <laughs> like in away from all of that and i was like wow all those people get to get fucked up by a ghost and <laughs> we're we're over here like you know on guam we respect our ancestors we respect the dead um so, you know, that was like a, you know, a fun kind of looking back on it now. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wasn't really worried about all that because like that's all over there. They're not, they can't come over here. Uh, they can't traverse <laughs> the, the, the pl- this plane of existence, you know, over the ocean. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember hearing uh, a lot of this. I mean, not, not so much the pop rocks and soda thing, but like the, you know, the person like scraping the top of the car and the hook killer and the person in the back seat. Like, um, I, I remember hearing a lot of those things as like ghost stories told at like sleepaway camp around a campfire. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in thinking more about them, or at least the way that they were told to me when I was younger and when I was growing up, there were a lot of them that were basically just about like, don't be promiscuous. Uh, right. or like that was the underlying message of all of them. Like, don't, don't make out with somebody in a car alone in the woods or, you know, especially don't... if you're a woman. Right. <laughs> right. And yeah, that, that a lot of the stories focus on like women experiencing, you know, reaper physical repercussions for promiscuity, uh, was a thing I was certainly not aware of when I was younger, but uh, right. But have like since realized like oh yeah a lot of these stories kind of revolved around a, a central point that like if you if you're doing it you're gonna you're gonna get in some trouble yeah um, well that's how the horror film like that's how it functions now for us in society it's it's taken over for those like oral histories uh, no, no pun intended uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. You know, they, um, you know, they've kind of, you know, those sorts of stories, all of that gets then echoed in. And so horror obviously has its foundations in a lot of misogynistic ideologies and racist ideologies and things like that that are meant to, you know, tell white people to, you know, stay safe, you know, and stay on your side of the tracks and, you mm-hmm. know, don't, don't do these bad things. Um, you know, and yeah, obviously, especially, especially for women. Um, so I am curious just to apply some of like, um, you know, with our, with our time we have left here <laughs> to actually talk about why you came on, you know, with the, uh, yeah. the idea. So there was, um, you, you sent us the book, which I did not have a chance to read in the few hours. That that's that's okay. I w- but I'm glad that we, you know, we saw what you were talking about. Cause I actually would really like to, uh, to read more of it, but I did find this shorter article in context from the Texas education stories of discovering community. And it's like, what do movies and TV tell us about higher education? You know, what mm. is, what is college like, you know, the, um, uh, stereotypes of like professors, uh, you know, how, you know, students are represented, particularly as hard partying, mm-hmm. uh, that college is just as, um, click, you know, oriented as high school is, uh, you know, rape culture, obviously that's a whole, I mean, a whole thing we could dive into, uh, the demographics of college, like just all these different 
things that are sort of informing, you know, you know, my 13, 14 year old self who saw this, you know, going like, oh, that's what college is going to be like. So curious about your thoughts uh, on how this movie plays into some of those, uh, the text that you were talking about. Uh, I think, I think it follows it pretty well, or it like, a, like the, uh, using it as a sort of frame for analysis, you there, it's very rich. It's a rich data set, we would say. Uh, <laughs> So one of the points that Reynolds argues in her book is that, um, you know, like media about college gets produced and it is to whatever degree accurate or inaccurate in the way that it depicts college. But then people consume that media and it shapes in some way the assumptions that they then go to college with or their assumptions about what college will be like when they get there. So it sort of becomes like the snake eating its tail where like people go to college and try to recreate the things they saw in the movies. And depending on how successful they are, they may come out of college and think that that's what college is actually like, and then produce more media to create, you know, to perpetuate that thing, or they may have an experience of it not being that way and might sort of evolve their thinking on what college is or is not depending on, any number of any number of things or any number of experiences they have while they're there. And so, you know, I think in a lot of ways, like urban legend sort of, yeah, it says that, you know, most of the men at college are going to frat parties and that fraternities have these gigantic houses that are just sort of dungeons of debauchery. And, you know, there was, um, I, I I have a particular place in my heart for the uh, the roommate conflict that uh, the <laughs> and and not and not just because I wish that there were um, you know goth women who wore lots of latex that went to the college that I went to because there weren't any and that I would have I would have at least been on some of those AIM chat rooms with them being like so what building are you in <laughs> can uh, can we can we chat. Um, but yeah, I, that I, whole thing, I don't know who, like, what kind of person is that? Like, there's no way, like, if there are people in the room, they all, we all have to be, they have to be involved, you know, like, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't just be like, I'm in this room with you doing my thing and you're over there reading. Like, no, that's so weird to me. Yeah. I don't um, know. I don't know if you had that. Like if you had roommates, I didn't have that typical college experience. You know, I didn't go away. I didn't stay in a dorm. I didn't mm. have to deal with that. So I don't know if that's like a real thing that people have a concern. <laughs> so um, I will say that uh, my first year in college, I did have a roommate who had a lot of sex. Uh, he was not interested in there being a non-participant in the room. So we had worked out um, a series of door signals ah. to indicate like, so, so in that way, like it, you know, is it life imitating art or the other way around in that? Like, yes, we did actually put the, put like a rubber band on the doorknob to indicate that there were some things going on that I would like you to not be present for. Um, so there was, so that was definitely a thing that happened in my sort of college experience. Um, there was somewhere else I was intending to go with that, but I don't remember what it oh, was. But yeah, so that's, a, that's okay. <laughs> that, but so that definitely did happen to me in my experience in the uh, in the college residence halls. But um, so a fun sort of piece of higher education trivia because I think this movie came out in '98. Am I remembering yeah. that correctly? Yes. 
So uh, you may have been able to get away with this then, but you definitely could not get away with this by the time I went to college in the early aughts um, was having that many candles around your room was like a huge no-no because <laughs> in, um, in, two, in 2000, there was a, a really like catastrophic fire at Seton Hall University in uh, New Jersey uh, that I believe was started by candles. If I'm misremembering, I'll, I'll have to go look this up because um, oh, students wow. in one of my classes are going to write a paper about this. Um, but it is sort of like one of the landmark issues that caused a lot of uh, caused like all of higher education to reassess a lot of their policies about like fire safety and evacuations and also about having um buildings retrofitted with sprinkler systems, even if they were grandfathered into like older sets of building codes because they were built like a long time ago. Um, but yeah, so I was watching it going like, you can't have that. Oh, wait. Yeah. In the nineties, maybe you could, <laughs> but because I've been working in higher education uh, in the 21st century, where we sort of all know that you're not allowed to have candles, my like immediate reaction was like, you can't do that. Also, um, I'm sure that it's possible that they exist, but if there is a college that will let you paint your room at all, let alone uh, paint mm -hmm. it, paint it jet black. I wish I went there. <laughs> um, so like, like Joshua, right. I also had like a, I, I didn't have the quote unquote college experience in the most kind of like Western American sense of the word. And in having this discussion right now, I'm kind of realizing that like these kind of media depictions of higher ed of college are will always be that for me like i will never know what i none of my college experiences ever came uh, close to what i've seen represented um in movies that i've watched like i didn't live on campus i didn't you know i didn't do a lot of things and so it will always kind of live as this kind of in the in that media scape um and it will never be anything that i can like truly relate to um even like my, my university doesn't have like athletics or like mm -hmm. doesn't have athletics on that large scale. So, you know, there was never really anything. The only thing that really tied me to it was the fact that like the, my degree program, the actual things I was learning were very interesting. Um, so it's really fascinating to kind of hear this, you know, Connor, what you said about like the, the Ouroboros, you know, eating its tail, um, Oh, is that what that's called? Yeah, I, I yeah. wanted to. I, Joshua's rolling his eyes because I know he's like, Joe just wanted to work that in there. <laughs> no, hey, I think it's great. You know? Well done. Uh, but like the, you know, that, that idea of like you, you know, working that in there and like this, the people who consume this media now will go into make, continue to make uh, um, media that kind of just reinforces things or they'll go and live that experience that like that to me is really fascinating because like if I was to make a film about like my college experience, it would be, it would be nothing that had ever that no, that anyone has ever seen yet because it was so, yeah. it was so different. Yeah. I, I'm and wondering I, Con Connor, what you think that, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Say something. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think uh, the, another thing like worth considering, I think your point makes that really well, Joe, is that like pretty much all of the like the vast majority of media at college depicts a very specific kind of college, but it is not actually the majority of colleges because like the majority of colleges in the United States are non-residential community colleges mm -hmm. and most right. of them and and 
you know, but yeah, it's, there's very few, uh, like films that depict like uh, an, a college that's in an urban setting or that is integrated with the city around it. They're all these like, you know, suburban or rural uh, palatial estates. And like in a lot of ways, like most of the colleges that are depicted in movies are really just trying to depict what Harvard looks like. And Harvard doesn't even really look like that anymore. <laughs> and, and so that gets to exactly the question I wanted to ask is what you think. So uh, horror, uh, you know, in our, in the thesis of our show functions as mm-hmm. a, uh, as a way to uh, deal with cultural anxiety, you know? So what is the purpose of depicting, like, what do you think the purpose of depicting universities in in a way that they're not really like? Like, what does that tell people? You know, if you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, all my professors are going to be these tweed wearing white dudes that, you know, think we're all dumb. They don't care about their jobs. They've got tenure, you know, everybody parties all the time. You know, it's all white people. It's all, you know, I'm going to have to go to college and it's going to be, you know, jocks versus nerds still, you know, like all of these things that aren't really true about the common college experience. Like what is the function of that? Do you think, why do we continue to echo? Cause I mean, these are still things that we see in horror even now where most of us do not have a traditional, you know, that experience. Um, What's the function? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think part of it is that like, if so, when, when people do it well, they can challenge and frustrate that because I mean, like, you know, as a, as a tweed wearing white guy, who's a professor now, like I don't have, I don't have tenure and I don't think that my students are stupid. Um, but you know, like, uh, in some ways, it, it, some of those things do, they, they definitely depict a segment of higher education or they definitely depict aspects of what higher education can be. You know, I, I was, I was an orientation leader when I was an undergraduate student. And one of the things that we used to say to students is like, yeah, if you want to find a party every night, you can find one. Um, but also there's a lot more too. And so, you know, if that's all you're looking for, maybe you'll find it. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I think that having these depictions can give us an opportunity to do is to ask whether or not they're, they're depicting everything or, you know, whether or not we're giving people the opportunity to have a different experience, which is one of the reasons that I really would, another reason that I really wanted to show um, my students, the 2019 remake of black Christmas, though I know that like there were people who really didn't like it. One of the things that I thought was really great about it was that it's still set in a sorority house. um, But, uh, it is a, an incredibly diverse sorority house. It is not just all blonde white women who come from upper middle class families and who are like fifth generation legacies of this particular university. Uh, but it is a, a racially diverse mix of women living in a sorority house and that the movie is sort of uh, an opportunity for folks to express a lot of their own agency. And, you know, the people of color are not the first people to die off. So it subverts a lot of these like horror tropes about women, about people of color. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In a a way that I thought was really, really cool and would create a platform for having some more interesting conversations about how movies about college can also be used to subvert, like, the pre-existing notions about college that we get from movies uh, in a way that I thought would have been really fun. So, you know, in, in some ways, I think, like, it's, like, I, I... I would hope that we, that there will continue to be movies about college and that like 
tell the different kinds of stories that are available or that are possible about college. So like Joe, if you want to write a horror movie about the kind of university that you went to, I think that would be really awesome because it would be, uh, it would be a different kind of story about different kinds of college and different kinds of people at college rather than, (laughs) rather than these sort of like recycling a lot of these same old tropes about one specific kind of college and one specific kind of person at college. Oh, Connor, I need, I I need another creative project. Like I need a hole in my head, but, (laughs) but, but this is something that I, this is something that I I think is definitely really interesting. Yeah. Uh, There's so much, so gosh, so much to cover. We're going to have to like have you back and do more of in this series because I mean, we just have barely touched the the surface of it. (laughs) So my, my favorite, my favorite part of my job. And I tell this to students when I meet with them sort of all the time is my favorite thing to get to do is to talk to people and to have generative conversations about ideas. So I love any opportunity that anybody has, anybody creates to say like, well, what do you think about this? And then they bounce off of my idea and then I can bounce off of their idea. And which is why like a lot of times my meetings with students are scheduled for 45 minutes and last two and a half hours because <laughs> it just you get going <laughs> yeah we have fun so That's i would amazing. i would love to talk about this for forever and ever and ever or to do as many of these as you all are willing to sit and listen to me talk about them oh believe me we've got yeah definitely we've got lots of uh there's lots of other really good horror films that are still set at universities that are different than urban legends that i would love to uh, continue uh chatting about yeah. Um, but we, we really thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon. This was awesome. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no worries. This was, this was a blast and this was much more fun than revising my syllabi, which I need to get back to at some point today. Ah, I thank you again, Connor, so much. We really, really appreciate this. And I mean, this is going to be like the first of like a thousand different, <laughs> a thousand different times you're probably going to be on the, be on the show. I, I love it. And I have um, to run, so I'll let you guys finish it. Sorry, this is so weird on the show, but I have to go. So I will uh, finish the conversation, and I will, can't wait till the next uh, next time we have you on, Connor. Yeah, no worries. I was just going to say I'd be happy to recommend other people who would also want to nerd out about this stuff with you all. Uh, we can't wait. Mm-hmm. Um, Connor, uh, can you just um, – could you go ahead and just reiterate for the listener um, – it- if there's, is there anything that you would like to share as far as like things that you've written or work that we can point them to, um, you, you, like, you know, uh, that they, if they, if people wanted to find you on the internet, um, you know, share, share those out. Yeah. I mean, if people want to find me on the internet, uh, I, I'm not. I really like Instagram. Instagram is my sort of preferred social medium. Uh, so my personal one that documents like all the stuff that I do in my day-to-day life is just X Connor X because I grew up going to punk and hardcore shows and people used to put X's on either side of their names. Um, <laughs> and it was, a th- and it just has sort of stuck. And then I also have a dedicated um, Instagram account that's coffee with Dr. Connor. So coffee with D-R-C-O-N-O-R. Um, and that is where I just sort of do like pictures of the coffee that I make and uh, just nerd out about coffee in specific, because in addition to all these other things that I get nerdy about, I love me a good cup of coffee. I will say this, that you, 
you were doing like a making coffee with Connor segment for like the first like good part of quarantine. Mm-hmm. And I, I kid you not, like I did keep time daily based on when those videos would come out. Um, <laughs> Cause I was just kept thinking like, Oh my gosh, like this is like, I, I also don't drink coffee. Um, well, let me rephrase that. I drink when I do drink coffee, it's like filled with sugar mm-hmm. and you know, it's got, that's the other thing is that I'm trying to, I need recommendations for like, you know, I don't like things to be too bitter and I Mm -hmm. like to, and I like things to, um, I have an attachment to, to sugar. Um, but yeah, like your, those videos really like were a way for me to kind of keep time during this. Um, so I, I, you know, as I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of people who probably don't, you know, who probably haven't said this to you yet, but like, I really appreciate those videos. (laughs) No worries. They were super therapeutic for me too, just to get to interact with people and talk to people and to have something to do with all of the energy that I was building up in my brain, not getting to interact with people. I'm a huge extrovert. And so the opportunity to talk with people is going to, is the thing that gets me up in the morning. And not that I don't love, didn't love spending five months um, hunkered down in an apartment with my partner, but she also needs her time to kind mm-hmm. of be to herself. And so uh, there came a point where it was just like, I knew that I was going to just explode uh, if I didn't figure out some sort of project to channel my energy into. And one of our friends started doing Facebook live videos about something else. And I was like, Oh, I'm just going to do, I'm going to do this, but about coffee. And that was the thing. And I still do, um, I do the live videos still like using Instagram live, uh, for people who want to follow me on Instagram. I don't do them as frequently, mostly because, um, just, uh, because I'm not a morning person. Yeah. I'm like, because you know, you don't have to wake up that early. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I do still, I'm trying to get back on a schedule of doing them because I had built up the habit of, making them. And then I stopped, uh, for some, you know, pretty good reasons, uh, like some reasons that were pretty intentional. Uh, I wanted to not be, I I wanted to pause producing content that wasn't going to specifically focus on, um, the voices and experiences of, uh, black, uh, indigenous and people of color, uh, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At, a, at a moment in this country when that when it was really really necessary to focus attention on the experiences that folks were having, and mm-hmm. so I just sort of said like, "Hey, I'm going to not do this for a little while," and uh, I would really encourage the energy that you put into watching them to seek out the voices of people of color, and particularly Black folks in the coffee industry, and support Black-owned cafes, which is a thing I still encourage people to do. And if you need help finding them in your local area. Um, folks can certainly reach out to me and I'd be happy to direct folks to any, any at all. Cause there are a lot of really great independently owned cafes and there are a lot of really great independently owned cafes by black folks in particular and people of color, um, more broadly. And I, uh, yeah, I'm sort of, I very much want, uh, the, I really, really want those to be able to be financially successful and sustainable, um, and I really, really want people to have the space of community that I found by going to coffee shops and seeking out independent coffee shops, which are really fantastic. So I decided to sort of lay off of my project in that way. And I've 
still sort of experimenting with new ways to do it or, you know, new mediums for it. Uh, but that's mm -hmm. sort of the fun of, you know, not having sponsors or it just sort of being a pet project is I can do it however I want and I can let it evolve and change over time rather than having to commit to a structure that might not work for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, again, I, 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 I want to bring something up because, um, you mentioned this earlier about like how the, and this is probably, you know, uh, <laughs> Joshua can chime in this two sets later. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, the idea that like college, you know, this college capital C, uh, movies that depicted are, you know, basically like stand-ins for the Ivy League, right? Like every, every university is like some sort of like private, you know, East Coast, uh, institution of some sort, um, and you, you know, since we're talking a little bit about like race and, and that depiction, um, like I, I'm, I'm curious because I'm curious to get your thoughts specifically on, um, on, uh, dear white people. Mm. Um, and we might need to have, save this conversation for after, <laughs> for after the pod. Um, but, uh, just, you know, it's so interesting because like dear white people is like, it's this, it's, you know, you're the premise of the, of, um, the, the text that you've been using is the idea that like, you know, college is a warning or like, you know, these are movies that are like depicting it in very specific places. And so I think like dear white people, it kind of like, it still depicts it as like this, like, you know, Ivy that no one knows, like, you know, at least us in the, the real world don't know about, but you know, as uh, this institution of privilege and kind of unpacks a little bit about that and unpacks un un unpacks all of that. But um, I don't know, like maybe this is a conversation that we have to have out off of, off of the horror conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm totally down to have that conversation. Uh, we watched uh, a handful of episodes of the T of the show, Dear White People uh, for mm -hmm. the class that I taught. And my students had some really phenomenal insights uh, in part because some of my students did go to elite, you know, private Northeast schools. And some of them went to large public research institutions in the Midwest and the West coast. And, um, the, and they had a lot of interesting things to say about what they thought. I don't want to say what they thought dear white people got right, because there's a lot of different things that are right about college, but how it compared to their own experiences and a lot mm -hmm. of the experiences that we've read about in other courses that they've taken to know the sort of different, the know all of the different kinds of uh, higher education that exist in the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I really liked the show. I have not seen the movie, uh, which is a big sort of hole in my pop culture consumption. Um, I know I need to see it. I just haven't. Um, but uh, I, I was pretty positive on the show and I thought it did some really interesting things of sort of taking the tropes of media about college and also like challenging them and troubling them and subverting them at, at the very least in ways of giving some insight into the interior lives of people of color who often exist in the background of movies like animal house or even like in urban legend where i think i counted two people of color um standing in various like background scenes or, or one of them was walking out of the gym and the other one was in the background at a house party and then I think like the radio producer, yes. um, 
who like you know is shirtless or like you know well not shirtless like is wearing one of those kind of like rayon like you know 90s rave shirts and then it's like it's like open yeah um which i was just like okay you great you do you um it's also fascinating for me because like, again, like we're supposed to believe like by seeing him there that like, Oh, the, the radio station is the like, um, what's it called? Is the, is the hip place. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, people of color, black people are being used as like, um, whose bodies are being used to like stand in for some sort of like cultural cachet mm-hmm. um, and, and add like legitimacy to, um, Tara Reed, who is doing like a very awful downtown Julie Brown, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, 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 we could just continue to go on. But I, I, I just want to let you know that this is such a. It was so fun to have you on, and um, maybe you need to send us your syllabus uh, or you know your different syllabi for this uh, semester because you're probably going to be on at least one or two more times uh, in the next couple months um, because we just, you know, this conversation was so great. Um, yeah. I would, so thank I would you again. Uh, I'm not teaching the film and fiction course uh, for this academic year, uh, but I'll happily send you both the syllabus and uh, also like the long list of movies that I had to cut from it just because I didn't think it was fair to have my students do 15 hours of watching plus all of the reading I assigned to them. And I, the benefit of this course is you could literally swap the entire course out for an entirely different set of media and not repeat things and still have great conversations and great learning. So yeah, there's lots and lots and lots to talk about uh, for awesome. related to colleges and the media. And any to anybody who ever wants to talk to me about it, you just buckle up because I can talk about <laughs> I could talk about it for weeks. It's like, and I, and you do, and you do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, again, thank you, Connor, for, for joining us on the show. Um, and again, you can find him on Instagram at X, uh, X Connor X, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, or um, to the coffee one again. Coffee with Dr. Connor. So coffee with Dr. Connor. Coffee with Dr. Connor on Instagram. And um, dear listener, we thank you once again for joining us for another great episode of Fright School. Welcome back to school, everybody. And uh, please stay safe, wash your hands, and uh, hopefully you are all enjoying um, a uh, virtual distance learning, you know, synchronous and asynchronous as it may be. Yes, yes. Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. listening to the Geekscape Network.